Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. My name is Scott, if we've never met before, and uh, I'm the pastor at Christ Church. And uh, if I haven't met you, I would love to meet you, whether it's virtually or one day we pray in person. Um, but my email is on our bulletin. If you have any questions about our church or anything, just reach out to me. I'd love to connect. Um, we are entering into a new series about Jesus politics and the coming kingdom. And everybody just loves political sermon series in seasons of uh, these seasons. Yeah, so get excited. I know everybody's like longing to talk about politics more. Uh, yeah, just kidding. Um, but we are entering into this series. And for many of us, it's like, oh, gosh you know, this is going to be intense. But uh, if you were at our retreat uh, last week, you would have heard me introduce what we're going to talk about. But I'd love to just intro the series a little bit before we dive into this text. Um, So the Jerusalem of Jesus's day was full of political and religious divisions and factions. Um, If you think America in 2020 is tense, you've never been to Roman occupied Judea in the first century. Uh, It was always about to blow. It was always about to blow. On one level, there were different Jewish denominations, and we see these mainly represented, if you've ever read the Bible before, by these groups called Pharisees and Sadducees. Some were more conservative. Some were more liberal. Some were more morally stringent, and some were more sophisticated and kind of Greek philosophical. And what do you know, these denominations in the Judaism of Jesus' day were also tied to political parties. So some of these kind of Jewish factions were pro-Rome and pro-Herod, and then others were extremely anti-Rome and anti-Herod. Some drew their influence from the cultural elite of the day, from like the aristocracy, and some drew their support from the populace, from the people. I was even shocked to find out as I was studying this week that they had different economic philosophies. How fascinating is that? So what did that mean? It meant that religion, theology, and politics were all tied up into this one nasty knot. If you pulled one string, everything else moved. And what does that sound like? Nothing you've ever heard of before, right? (laughs) You, You can't relate to that at all. It sounds like today. Today, progressive Christian theology is tied to progressive politics, democratic politics. Conservative Christian theology is tied to conservative politics, Republican politics. Often, they look extremely similar. Often, they're hard to tell apart. You pull one string and everything moves, right? Now, let me say, uh, I wish I could see everybody right now in person because you can kind of, it's good to have the feeling of this. But our church has people all across the political spectrum. Most of you know that. If you're new to our church, it's good for you to know. All across the political spectrum, all across stages of life and faith, different backgrounds coming from different parts of different cultures. So if you're watching this or you're listening to this, wherever you're at, welcome. This is actually for you. You're in the right place at the right time. But how do we handle this? How do we enter into this season when our world is a powder keg like this? Uh, The first presidential debate is on Tuesday. Knives out, baby. It's it's time. Uh, With the Supreme Court fight, everything. I mean, it's like if it already wasn't cranked to 11, 
in 2020, it's now definitely at 11. One option we could do is we could just retreat into our trenches, hate the opposite side, let our theology and our politics meld and imitate the world. But that is not the way of Christ. Amen? We're not going to do that. We refuse as the church to be conformed to the world, as St. Paul says, but rather we long to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Hallelujah. That by testing, we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't you want to have your mind renewed? I do. So what is the way of Christ in this election season? What would Jesus say and do if he had a chance to show up into 2020 to enter into our world of divisions? I know that's like the million dollar question. Luckily for us, the gospels give us a picture of a time where Jesus does enter into the divisions of his world. The city of Jerusalem, as it remains today, was the center of all the tension all the political and religious tension. If you're familiar with the, the Bible, most of Jesus's ministry up until kind of late in his life was done outside, kind of in rural Judea. But as Jesus grew more famous, the people grew more curious about Jesus and all the cultural, religious, political leaders grew more suspicious of Jesus. So if this happened today, you'd have to imagine that Republicans and Democrats dominate the headlines. I, uh, the other day saw my ballot as we were looking for a voter registration and saw the other people who were running for president. I was like, oh, look at these guys, you know, fascinating. Different parties that aren't the big Republican Democratic headlines. So you have to imagine Democrats and Republicans are dominating the headlines, but they hear about this movement, this grassroots movement outside of DC and this leader that everybody's kind of growing. And they would all be skeptical of that. Like, who is this guy? Is he one of us? Is he on our team? Is he for the other guys? So they have their little campaign meeting and all their lackeys and like, go find out, figure out who this guy is and what he's about. And all the tension around Jesus in his day reached a fever pitch on Holy Week, the last week of his life, when Jesus enters in to the middle of everything, into Jerusalem. And remember how Jesus enters. How does Jesus enter? Triumphantly, right? Palm Sunday. He does not enter quietly. <laughs> To say the least, he rides in like a king and people around him are saying Hosanna to the son of David, which is a royal title. So everybody's shaken up. And that happened on the Sunday of Holy Week, the first day. The next day on Monday, Jesus raised the stakes by going into the temple, the center of Jerusalem and turning over all the tables, driving out all the moneylenders uh, and going right for the heart of kind of the religious center. And I would say the economic center. So that happened, that happened on Monday, and that ticked off a lot of people. So Jesus, as this grassroots leader, was not content just to stay on the outside of things. In just two days, on the first two days of Holy Week, he had entered right into the heart of the political, religious, and economic spheres of Jerusalem. Holy smokes. And thus it was the next day, on Tuesday of Holy Week, that Jesus comes back to the temple and all the leaders of all the different parties come into the temple with all the people watching, all the cameras rolling, all the mics turned on for one of the greatest press conferences in history. Um, the Gospels don't call it a press conference. I'm calling it a press conference. I think it's a great way to think about it. This is that moment where after he has come in triumphantly on a donkey, he's cleansed the temple, all of his ministry is made and famous, that everybody is like, Jesus, explain yourself. 
you know, you've done all this stuff. Finally, people have an opportunity to ask him what's happening and everybody is watching and listening. Um, the Broadway musical Hamilton has started this tradition that has gone beyond itself of having epic historic rap battles between historical figures. If you've seen Hamilton, think of Jefferson and Hamilton's economic like rap battle. Of all the parts of the gospel that I would love to see a historic rap battle, and maybe this is something our people can, can handle uh, and put out as a video at the end of the series, it would be this episode. I would love to see this as an episode of a rap battle because all the leaders are in the temple and they are chucking really well-crafted gotcha questions at Jesus. They're trying to trap him, but every time Jesus leaves them speechless until he starts asking the questions himself. So this episode is what we're going to be studying during the election season. The questions that the people ask Jesus, I think, are the questions that we also would want to ask of Jesus right now. They're really good. The answers Jesus gives, I think, are the answers that we need right now. This series is not going to be partisan. It's not going to be another opportunity for us to enter into an echo chamber politically, culturally, whatever. Rather, we're praying that it's going to be an opportunity each week to actually step out of the craziness of our 2020 discourse and let God speak into the whirlwind with his still small voice. Don't you want that? The next couple months are going to be crazy. We pray that our times as a community in the scriptures and in the spirit are going to be like stepping out of the whirlwind and hearing God speak. So Lord, we just pray as we are entering into this series and this time, as we prayed before our service, Lord, that you would carve out space. You would carve out shelter. Oh Lord, we long to see you as king and as friend and as Lord and as brother and as God. Open up our eyes, Lord. Make our spiritual sensitivity sharp and flexible and speak. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, grab your Bible. Matthew 21. That's in your bulletin as well, but if you have a Bible, grab your Bible. We're going to Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, and I would love for you to get your Bible to follow along with me um, if you can. Everybody there? Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. And when he entered the temple, here the scene begins, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this scene that we're talking about during, during Holy Week. And even though they're all slightly different, they all have this question as the leaders, as the first question that the leaders of Jerusalem ask Jesus. This is the first one. And it's the first question for a reason because it's the authority question. They want to know, who do you think you are? <laughs> what gives you the right to barge in here and do and say all of this crazy stuff? They want to know Jesus's credentials. 
because this is a deeply, deeply credentialed world. Um, I remember the first time as a freshman in college uh, reading books that were written by the man or woman 10 feet away from me in class, the professor, and being around really smart credentialed people for the first time and uh, learning how to play the credentialed game. Oh my gosh, they have their PhD from here. Oh my gosh, they wrote these books. This person studied under that person. Like, whoa, did you hear about that senior? She just graduated. She's going to this school to study with that person. And by the time I was a senior in the academy, I knew all the best schools around the world and who were the really famous profs in all the different places and who was cool and who was, you know, owning who and who debated who. And you know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been in a world like that? That is how the Judaism of Jesus's day felt. For the Jews, everything revolved around what tribe you were a part of, who your parents were, and who the rabbi was that you studied under. You sat at the foot of, which is what, how the Jews would have described it. I sat at the foot of so-and-so. And as a priest or a rabbi, you would constantly invoke that in your teaching, and you would constantly invoke the authority of the rabbi that you studied under and their interpretation and their interpretation of some text or whatever. Um, and we get a picture of this in the Apostle Paul this morning in Philippians. He grew up in this world big time. Here's what he says in Philippians 3. He's like, hey, you want to boast about credentials? Well, let me tell you mine. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Um, And we also find in Acts 22 that he studied at the foot of Gamaliel, who was one of the most famous Pharisees of his day. So for the Jews, that's how you would answer that question. Who gave you the authority you have? What authority do you have? You would have, you would have rattled off your, the letters after your name, kind of your accomplishments. Now, outside of Jerusalem, remember the Roman world is just as much a part of this. Things still revolved around authority. Remember the one time there's a centurion, which best way you can explain a centurion is Maximus in Gladiator, okay? Think like Roman soldier guy. And he's talking to Jesus, and he says in Matthew 8, earlier in this book, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. They're talking about a servant. And then he says, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So do you see how even the Roman world was tightly controlled by authority? The centurion is under authority. People under him are under authority. Even the big movers and shakers in the Gospels, guys like Herod and Pilate, are absolutely under authority. So for the Romans, that's kind of what you would have said. You would have shown a signet ring or your imperial decree papers or something like that. So do you see how significant the question is and how pointed it is for Jesus as he's shaking everything up? Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you that authority? tense. Um, Notice the question isn't if he had authority. I love this. Everyone knows the dude has authority. Uh, That's something they say all throughout the Gospels. They noticed. He finishes the Sermon on the Mount, and what does it say? Everybody was like, that guy speaks with authority. Jesus exuded authority. He naturally just had it. People flocked to it, or they were extremely threatened by it if they had any authority in their little world. 
So it's not if. They just want to know where in the world is this coming from. And do you see the question under the question? I think if you probed it a little deeper, they're asking, Jesus, where do you come from? How do you fit into our tightly ordered, tightly controlled world? And that is the question as we're gearing up into the election season that we probably would love to ask Jesus as well, right? Jesus, what authority do you bring into our political polarized world? Where does that authority fit? Whether you've been following Jesus for a long time, that's a question that you would wanna ask. I, I love studying this because I wanna know that question. Um, if you aren't, wouldn't describe yourself yet as a Christian and you're watching this, you probably would love to ask that question as well. Is Jesus and Christianity just like a voting block? Um, how does Jesus fit into all this? Hmm. Let's see how Jesus responds. So good. Verse 24. You guys there? Yeah. Give me a uh-huh. Uh -huh. Okay, thank you. Jesus answered them. I will also ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Oof. Okay. What is going on here? Um, Jesus responds to this clear question with a seemingly random, kind of ir irrelevant question about John the Baptist. Why? In Jesus' wisdom, he's not dodging the question. He's actually answering it. And there's a lot of really juicy context and backstory to this question, which in order to really understand, we're going to dig into and kind of try to understand and pull out. But I need you guys to hang in with me. So can you guys dive deep for a second and know that we're going to come up for air? Uh, so I'm going to ask you to track with me here. It's really awesome. This is something that I have read a lot of times and not really understood. But this is really cool. You see, even though Jesus didn't come up through a hip rabbinical school or university, think like an Ivy League rabbi school, um, even though Caesar never had given him any power, there was one movement and there was one historical authority figure in Jesus's day that did come before Jesus and did have a role in preparing Jesus's ministry. And who was that? The desert dwelling bug-eating, fire-preaching John the Baptist. I love John the Baptist so much. Um, remember, John comes first, according to the purposes of God. The prophet Isaiah that Michael read today, the prophet Malachi, all foretold of one who would come first and cry out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. And what was the main thing that Jesus came out to receive from John, baptism. Okay, if you're new to Christianity or to the Bible, Jesus begins his public ministry when he's about 30 years old. Um, and it all begins in each of the four gospels with the baptism of John. That's what starts everything. He comes out to be baptized first. And we've talked about this in our church before, but if you're new to the Bible, a helpful way to understand Jesus's baptism is it's like his sword in the stone moment. It's kind of the moment when he comes onto the scene and everybody gasps and goes, oh my gosh, it's like his coronation, basically, his anointing. It's the moment uh, that he's set apart for ministry. 
It's the moment that he publicly receives the mantle of divine authority. And we know this because the Holy Spirit anoints him like a dove. Think of like oil on the head in the Old Testament for the coronation of a king or the anointing of a king. And the father pronounces thunderously from the sky his verbal blessing from heaven. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. So if there was ever a moment that Jesus received his authority from somewhere, it was his baptism, right? And who was the only other person who was called to participate in that moment? Crazy cousin, bug-eating, fire-preaching John. So, not so random that Jesus answers the question about where he got his authority by asking a question specifically about the baptism of John. Are you guys still with me? Mm-hmm. If we were in a larger room, I would love to feel where everybody's at because I know that's a lot. The big thing is the Jesus movement was born out of the John movement. So if that's true, just for fun, let's play a little game and think about what characterized John the Baptist's movement. Think about this. How did John's movement fit in with the religious and political world of his day? Randy's shaking his head. Margaret is saying, not well. The answer, it didn't. It didn't fit in. It was born in the desert. From outside, he was utterly detached from the machine of Rome and Jerusalem, kind of high culture Judaism. Who gave John his authority? God. Did a rabbi give John his authority? Did he graduate from an Ivy League rabbi school? Did he come up through a political system? No. The scriptures are clear that even before John was conceived, God had set apart this man for a unique ministry. It was God who gave him his his anointing and his calling and his authority. What was his platform? If everybody else is campaigning and has like fundamental things, what's a part of John's platform? Repent. Repent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whose platform is that today? National repentance. Well, that was John's. It was repentance and not just repentance, but also pointing to one who was to come. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was a part of John's platform. Mm. How did people react to his movement? What about the people? People loved it. Right? We see that even in this passage. The people love John. How did the leaders react to John? Not so much. They did not really like him. In fact, we see in this episode with Jesus, the Sadducees and the Pharisees coming together, which isn't usual. It's like Democrats and Republicans coming across the aisle to face a common enemy. That happens here with Jesus. The other time we see that happen is with John. The Sadducees and the Pharisees come out to John, and they want to know what he's all about. And with Rome, remember, John meets his end when Herod chops his head off at a dinner party because he didn't like John calling out his sexual sin. So by asking what they think about John, Jesus isn't being evasive. Do you see this? In public, in front of all the people and all the leaders in the middle of Jerusalem, and Jesus loves his cousin, right? Remember, he's deeply moved when he hears about his death. He says of all... 
people born of woman, no one is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus loves John, and by asking them what they think about him, he's putting his finger right on the hot spot. On the one hand, he's answering their question. The implication is from heaven, and therefore my authority is from God. But by asking them what they think about John's ministry, he's giving them a test, an opportunity to see whether they're actually, they actually want to dialogue with Jesus or whether they just want to politically fight. Oh, man. So let's see what they, how they react, okay? Open back up with me. We're in Matthew 25, like in the middle of the verse. And they discussed it among themselves. They all get like, okay, we got to huddle for this. So you got to imagine Jesus gives this zinger and then they're like, okay. Uh, Verse 25, if we say from heaven, then he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd for they all hold that John was a prophet. After a, a deliberating huddle for a while, a recess in like court, they come back and they answer Jesus, we don't know. (laughs) And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Oh my goodness. The elders find themselves, this is really powerful. And this is where we're going to bring our head up in a second. We're going to think about what this does for us. Thank you for tracking with me. That was a lot of Bible. The elders find themselves caught between two impossible options. The first option is being wrong. Do you see that? If they answered from heaven, they would be admitting that God's prophetic word had come into their midst and they didn't listen. That's not an option for them. They can't be wrong, so they refuse that option. The second option is losing their popularity, losing their base, and losing their votes. If they say John was just a dude, then they'll lose their base, and that's not an option either. And so they are stuck in between their pride and their lust of power. Gotcha, says Jesus. Gotcha. So what do they do? They opt out. They say no comment and in so doing abdicate both their moral and intellectual authority. They are not willing to grapple with their conscience. Do you see that? They're not willing to grapple with things deeper than parties or tribes. They're not even willing to have the imagination to consider that something outside of their sphere of influence could be coming to bear upon them. They're not interested in truth. They're interested in self-preservation and votes. And thus, as one old scholar that I read put it this week, quote, the root of the trouble lay not in their intellects, this is important, but in their stubborn wills. They stood self-condemned. The Lord's question was not a trap. It was yet another opportunity for them to realize and confess their blindness, and ask for sight, but they refused the opportunity. And so Jesus, don't you love this? He just ends the conversation there. He's like, I'm not going to continue this. I find Jesus' wisdom 
is so brilliant there. He's just like, he, he saw where they were at and he's like, I'm just not gonna, I'm gonna shake the dust off this. You guys don't actually wanna engage with me and have a conversation. Okay, thank you for hanging in there with me. There is so much spiritual dynamism here, isn't there? It is so sharp. You get under there and you, you start being convicted even by entering into the conversation. What do we do with this? What's the payout in 2020? I think the real application uh, comes in what it teaches us about Jesus right now and what it teaches us about ourselves. What does it teach us about Jesus and how he relates to this political season? Well, it has a lot to do with what we all thought about John's movement. First and foremost, Jesus has authority. Jesus has authority. Whether or not we acknowledge it, it doesn't matter. He has authority. All authority on heaven and earth has been handed over to him. He has authority. Second, just like John, Jesus' authority comes from the outside. And by that I mean the authority of Jesus in 2020 is not bestowed upon him or controlled by any of us. His authority does not arise from Republicans. It does not arise from Democrats. Neither is it stewarded by any party or denomination exclusively. His authority is not American. It's not Anglican or Catholic or Pentecostal or Evangelical. It comes from God. Amen? Amen. It comes from heaven. It comes from outside of us. Prophetically, like John coming out of the desert, like Jesus coming out of nowhere and John pointing at him and being like, oh my gosh, behold the Lamb of God. Third, though, his authority barges into the middle. I love the picture of this, and this is an awesome place for us to start. Jesus has authority. It comes from the outside of all our systems. It's above us. It's above our political authorities. But then it affects them. Jesus does not stay on the outside of our political, religious, economic, and cultural worlds. He didn't do it in his ministry, and he doesn't today. He comes right into the middle of it. He cleanses the temple. He calls Herod a fox. He stands before Pilate and has the audacity to tell him, you only have authority because my father gave it to you. Don't you love that? So we don't acknowledge Jesus' authority in church, and sometimes we're tempted to do this, in our devotional life, and then we kind of close that book, we leave the church sphere, and we enter into the public sphere, thinking that it's kind of ruled by a different world of authorities. On the contrary, we realize that Jesus intends his authority to be over everything. And that includes nations and politics and culture and everything. So then the question comes to us, and this is, um, this is the delicious part about it for me. And I, I just am wrestling, like there's a lot of applications of this that I'm not even getting to the bottom of, bottom of. But the question is then, how will we engage his authority in this season? Um, the text shows us that there are two ways we can engage with Jesus about politics and culture. There are two ways. The first is what the cultural leaders do in this story. And if we're brave enough to admit it, what we do all the time. We come before Jesus gripping our political party, our persuasions, our influence, our credentials, right? Our comfort zones, our love for certain people, our hatred for other people. And we are not as interested 
in engaging with the person, living, real person of Jesus Christ as we are in seeing if he fits into our positions or forcing him to fit into our positions. We don't really want to have the conversation. Our trench is already dug and we're, we're sitting in it. And when we do that, we miss him. Do you see the tragedy here? You don't think Jesus would have loved to have connected with these guys? They missed him. That can happen to us. Jesus loves us too much to enable us in our tribalism and worldly allegiances by allowing us to continue to relate to him that way. He's not going to do it. So that's the first, gripping it. The other option is to humble ourselves, loosen our political cultural grip and draw close to Jesus. Here's just an interesting thing to, to finish on, an interesting mind game. What could the Pharisees have said and done and the Sadducees and all the leaders that would have led them to freedom? Like what was, what's a good option that could have happened in this context? They get in their huddle. Jesus has just given them this amazing question and they're like, oh, somebody who is able to loosen his grip a little bit is like, oh my gosh, guys, what if we were wrong? What if John was from God? <laughs> and what if that means that Jesus is also from God and maybe we've been blinded to some things? And they turn back to Jesus and say, we're not really sure, but there's a chance that we didn't listen to you or to John and that ministry really was from God and we've been blinded. How would Jesus have reacted to that answer? Ha! Told you! He shoved it in their face in the temple in the middle of everybody. Absolutely not. You don't think Jesus would have rejoiced? You don't think he would have just fed them more and more, just drawn them close, like, oh, there's a chink in your humility. Come closer, come closer, come closer. Now, what would have happened to those guys? Here's the next part of this that I find fascinating. These were leaders in front of everybody admit to being broken and blind and they actually need a Messiah, okay? What happens in that situation? I can guarantee you what would have happened is they would have lost their place. You don't think the authority structures that they were a part of, their Ivy League rabbinical schools, wouldn't have immediately denounced them? They would have lost everything. You know what happened to John? His head was cut off. You know what happened to Jesus? He was crucified. You don't think they would have followed in that same path? But in so doing, in losing their life, they would have what? Found it. Amen? And here's what's awesome. This is what happens to the apostle Paul. Paul was a Pharisee. We get one example in the New Testament of a Pharisee fully flipping. And that is Paul. That's why his story is so precious. Do you remember how he finished after his resume in Philippians? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But what, is he, what does he say? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, that I might share in his sufferings and know him in the power of his resurrection. At the beginning of a political season like 2020, or a sermon series like this, we want practical answers. I do too. This is Marissa and I having this dialogue. We were working on this. She was constantly like, yeah, but what does that practically mean? And like, 
I'm there too. We want to know about positions. We want to know about platforms. We want to know how to vote. So did people in Jesus' day. That's how it all began. And don't worry, Jesus speaks into all those things. The next question is about taxes, and Jesus actually answers it. It's like very practical, so they're going to go there. But first, notice Jesus doesn't immediately go into those things. He puts up a buffer first. He asks a question back first as we want to engage him. He gives these guys an opportunity to be shaken out of their tribalism in order to engage with God. And that is our opportunity this morning and over the coming months. Amen? Amen. Are you willing to let go of your grip? Not for nothing. So that you can interact with the Son of Man. Are you willing to have Jesus call you out of your herd mentality? Just a little bit. Jesus wants your heart. He wants to continue the conversation with us. What's clear in this story is the challenge for us is are we willing to continue the conversation with him? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.